Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for the gifts of the body and for the stability of Oak Hill Bible Church. Over the years, Lord, we've been here for a while now. Lord, you've used this church over the years to glorify your name here in Austin and to serve so many people who've come through this building from time to time. And Lord, the the history is not done. There's more to be written here. We know that. But even now we look back and we recognize your faithfulness and, and your work here by your word, by your spirit, while the church is in some cases chasing after things that are not helpful. And sometimes we make those mistakes too. Nevertheless, Father, you have been good to hold our feet to the fire, so to speak, to keep us grounded in your word and to be concerned with the things that you're concerned with, by and large. We thank you for that steadiness, Father, for that, for that focus, for the men who've come before and will come after us, who, who come teaching and guiding and in prayer, for the women, Lord, who come with a heart to serve or to encourage, to pray, to teach, for the youth and the children, Father, who come with such energy and, and interest and liveliness. They remind us, Father, that it is such a joy to live in this world that you've given us, and yet the best joy, the greatest joy, Father, awaits us all in our new bodies and in the kingdom. And I thank you, Lord, that you've given us the word so that we'd have a mind to think of that and to focus there and to raise our eyes up from the, from the things of this world that disappoint us and leave us wanting. And so, Lord, as we come near the end of this wonderful letter that Paul wrote, I pray that you'd give us that mind as we consider what he's writing and all that he's written, that we'd be thinking of the future and looking beyond our immediate concerns, Father, so that we would always have eyes for eternity. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned in the prayer, we are coming near the end. If you've been watching carefully with chapter counts, you ought to be noticing very clearly by now we're in the middle of chapter 15 and there's only 16 chapters to this letter. And if you were to glance with me, just flip your the page of your Bible or one or two pages, you'll notice that chapter 16 is very short, relatively speaking, to the other chapters. And the content is very simple. It's the wrapping up of the letter, referring to some personal things of Paul and some instructions to the church and a benediction and so on. So really, chapter 16 will be a conclusion of the letter. We won't spend much time in that chapter, probably. So we're really at the last of the heart of the letter, the last issue, the last verses on this issue. And I hope you've enjoyed what you've learned. This has been a letter for me that's always had a a really special place in my heart. I find it so contemporary, so immediate to our everyday circumstances, and so tender even because it's dealing with such clear mistakes of theology and behavior, and yet... Paul resists the temptation to just lower the hammer. You know, he's very patient, as we need to be with each other. And as we've looked at this last topic in chapter 15, the topic of resurrection, the reality of resurrection is so clearly important to Paul and so clearly important to the church that he's reserved his longest and most detailed defense in his letter among all the topics to this one topic, to the one of resurrection. And up till the point where we stopped in verse 28, Paul has argued three points. Paul argued first that the hope of resurrection lies at the heart of the gospel itself. And this is the gospel the church believed, according to Paul's testimony, so that they were rejecting the very thing that they claimed to believe. Secondly, Paul said Christ himself was raised as eyewitnesses proved. And that demonstrates the reality of resurrection. And then thirdly, what we studied last week, Christ's very purpose in departing from his place in the Godhead in heaven to becoming man physically living on the earth, to be born of a woman, that purpose was to conquer death, 
which he did so by making a way possible for men to receive the same eternal body that he now occupies. So, in other words, resurrection is the reason Jesus even came to begin with. So these three arguments made the point clearly, powerfully, that resurrection of the body is a reality for the church. But Paul's not done arguing his case. Today he's going to use two examples to further the point, to further the argument, two examples in which the actions of this church in their daily behavior and in their rituals of practice were contradicting their claims to not believe in resurrection. So they weren't acting in a way that's consistent with what they were claiming to believe. The first of those examples is found in verse 29, which is where we start. Paul says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, well, why then are they baptized for them? It's a bit of an inscrutable verse, isn't it? Let's let's understand it in stages. First, I want to begin with the first word. Paul says, otherwise. What he means is, if resurrection isn't true, then. That's what that word is conveying in meaning. It's saying, look, if it's right that resurrection is not true, if you believe that it's not true, then why are you baptizing for the dead? Now, that phrase is potentially confusing, to say the least. In fact, the Mormon religion has misunderstood this one verse to the point of creating a bizarre false doctrine that drives some of the behavior in that false religion. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion, and his followers invented the practice of researching family genealogies. You all probably know Mormons are big on genealogy. Why are they so big on genealogy? Because of this one verse. What they do is they research their family genealogies, going back as far as they possibly can, looking for the names of family members who died without first accepting the Mormon religion. And in their mind, if you haven't accepted the Mormon religion, you won't be in heaven. So, in secret rituals, the Mormons will perform a baptism, so to speak, on behalf of dead relatives who they have discovered by name in their genealogies, thinking that by going through this ritual, they are giving these dead family members eligibility to enter the Mormon version of heaven. And they have come to this ridiculous practice from this One verse and nothing else, for it doesn't have any other cross-reference. Thinking that they are practicing the thing Paul is advocating here, that is, baptizing for the dead. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure out the errors in this heresy, in this Mormon heresy. First, we know that the Bible teaches that following death comes judgment without the possibility of some second chance or some last-minute rescue from some living relative. Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.27 that inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. God has appointed that men die. And he has also appointed that at the physical death of the person, their spirit will meet with whatever their eternal fate is, whatever eternal judgment they are due, will attach, will come to pass at the moment that their body dies. There is no backup plan. There is no escape clause. There is no second chance. What is sealed and done at your death is true for eternity. That's the teaching of Scripture. So that precludes the possibility of any such nonsense as you would see happening out of this verse in the Mormon religion. But secondly, we also know from Scripture that every man or woman will be judged by God according to their own faith, and their own decisions, not on the basis of someone else's. 
Ezekiel says this, and God's speaking through Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18.20. He's speaking to the Jewish nation, but the principles he's espousing are true for all human beings. He says in verse 20 of chapter 18, The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's sin, nor will the father bear the punishment for his son's sin. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. But if the wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices, justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions, which he has committed, will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness, which he has practiced. He will live. Now, if you understand this in context and in the light of overall teaching of scripture, we understand that God is speaking here in terms of the absolutes of perfection being the requirement in order to be judged righteous. And we obtain that by faith in Christ's work and not by an accomplishment of our own. But the principle here is we stand or fall on the basis of who we are, not on the basis of what someone else does. No one can be rescued from hell by someone else. Speaking of family members and the like, I can't save you. Though I wish I could, right? I wish it were the case that we had that power, but I don't. I can't save you, nor can you save me, whether before I die or after I die, for that matter. A parent cannot save their infant child through baptism in water. Nor can a child save a dead parent after the fact through some silly Mormon ritual. These things are clear violations of principles of Scripture. And then, of course, we have the whole context of the verse itself, denying the interpretation the Mormons give. Verse 29 is not talking about baptizing dead people, even though the sound of it in the English might suggest that. What is Paul talking about and how does it relate to the truth of resurrection? Well, let's take a second look at the text again and we'll begin to figure it out. Paul asks, what will those do who are baptized for the dead if resurrection isn't true? What he's speaking about here is water baptism, right? He's speaking about the baptism that we follow as a church, that the Christian church follows in bringing believers into water and then back out of water. The water baptism that every believer undergoes as a consequence of professing faith in Christ. Having believed, we step into the water and we receive baptism. Think of what baptism means, why it was given. Water baptism was given to the church by Christ himself, to communicate a picture. What is the picture? The picture of water baptism is of death and resurrection, with the water being a picture of the grave. So when we enter the water and someone submerges our body, we are testifying to our belief that our sinful nature was put to death with Christ through our faith in his death on the cross. And then, when that same person lifts us up out of the water, hopefully, when they do that, they are allowing us to testify that we one day will resurrect into new bodies just as Christ has been resurrected himself. That we will share in his death and likewise we will share in his resurrection. That's the meaning of water baptism. And the water is just a convenient metaphor for the grave. So that's the reason we have a water baptism in the church. That's its message. That's what it communicates to the world. That's why we've been asked to do it, to testify in this unique way. And by the way, there's a little aside I should mention here. Why do we have two people involved in baptism? Why can't I baptize myself? Well, because that would distort the message. The second person must conduct the ritual to illustrate you cannot save yourself. We depend on the Lord to lay in the grave in our place. 
And we also depend on his spirit to raise us into a new body. You cannot do the acts of salvation by yourself. It requires someone else. And that someone, of course, being the Lord. So even in that, God has designed this beautiful picture that requires that we can't do this by ourselves. All right. So back to Paul's question. Paul asked the church now in Corinth this wonderful question. He says, why are you practicing baptism for the dead if you don't believe in resurrection? Now, his question will make a lot more sense if I add a missing phrase that's not present in the text, but it's implied by what Paul says here. It's unstated, but implied. He says, what will those do who are baptized for the resurrection of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are you baptized for them? In other words, the word baptism is actually a shortened version of the proper name. The proper name for baptism is baptism for the resurrection of the dead. A picture or a ritual designed to reflect my belief that I will be raised from the dead one day like Christ was. And Paul just shortened it. He just called it baptism for the dead instead of baptism for the resurrection of the dead. And, of course, that allowed the Mormons, who didn't have spiritual insight, to run off and do crazy things with it, as unbelievers will do. So, Paul asks, why are you, the church, continuing to practice water baptism on your people if you don't believe in resurrection from the dead? Isn't that an elegant argument? Because if you don't believe in resurrection, you'd have no reason to engage in a ritual whose only purpose is to communicate belief in resurrection. You're living a contradictory behavior to the belief you claim. And so in that example, Paul points out their ignorance. Now, to the second example of their behavior contradicting their beliefs, you find that in verses 30 through 32. Paul says, well, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So here's Paul's second argument from example. He says, why does Paul and the other apostles, why do they, in fact, why do all Christians, for that matter, in Paul's day, why do they place themselves in harm's way for the sake of the gospel if resurrection isn't true? Put simply, why would I endure persecution as a Christian If it's true that this is the only life I'm ever going to live, that there's no second life, there's no resurrected life, because he says the apostles remain in danger every hour of their lives. Friends, I think sometimes we overlook just how dangerous their job was on a daily basis, not just on an occasional moment when he's stoned outside the city, but literally hour to hour to hour. I want you to think of it like the Jews living in Nazi Germany. Or in Poland during the Second World War. There was never a minute they weren't at risk. There was never a moment they could just relax and walk down the street. There was never a time they weren't going to be at risk that somebody might attack them, hunt them down, imprison them, beaten them, starve them. Paul says all of these things elsewhere in his letters. He was never at ease. He was always at risk. Can you imagine living under that kind of stress and pressure for decades? Paul says in verse 31, He said because of his work in founding the church in Corinth, he received even more persecution. Which again is to say, I did this to gain something that is not my earthly pleasure, not my earthly reward. Because if it's true that I'm not going to live a second life, why would I choose to live this way in the one body I'm going to get? What would be the benefit in it? If everything brings negative response, negative outcomes, then how could he have been working from human motives? 
It means he's working from spiritual motives. He says in verse 32, if working for the gospel only produced rewards in this lifetime, why would he risk his neck? He says they're wild beasts. That sometimes gets people a little excited. Ooh, wild beasts. What was he doing? You know, safari? What was this all about? It's actually just a euphemism. It's a reference to the enemies of the gospel in Ephesus. He, he's using that term to describe the people in Ephesus that he, quote, wrestled with, fought with in trying to establish the gospel. And he's actually writing this letter to Corinth while he's in Ephesus. So he's referring to his own ongoing battles in Ephesus to establish the gospel. So if resurrection is a lie, why would I do what I'm doing? It makes no sense. He said, instead, it had been a lot more sensible for me to adopt Solomon's perspective in which he says, we need to wring every last drop of pleasure out of this life because if it's the only one we got, why not? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and that's the end. The argument would be, get the most you can while you can. But that's not what Paul did, is it? And certainly not what the other, other apostles did. And it's not what Paul commanded the church to do. Instead, he says, fight hard against the gospel's enemies, both in Ephesus, elsewhere, and throughout history. Why? To ensure the Lord is pleased, to serve him well, and to advance the kingdom. None of those things have an earthly component. None of those outcomes gain an earthly reward. These men took the risks that they took with their earthly lives because they understood that the promises of abundant life have nothing to do with the life of this world. When Christ says, I came to give life and that abundantly, the world and even sadly some ignorant Christians have come to think that that's a promise concerning how we live our life here and now, and it is not. It is a reference to the spiritual life of the kingdom, to the resurrected life, to what comes after this body is gone, not to what comes while we're in it. Even if he may bless us to some measure here and now, so be it. But that's not the fulfillment of that promise. It's the only explanation for why Paul placed himself in harm's way time and time again for the gospel, because he knew he was earning something that could not perish, that would only show up when he reaches the eternal, when he is resurrected and living in the kingdom, then he'll see the full measure of, of Christ's pleasure in him. And he's willing to suffer now for that reward. If resurrection's not true, you cannot explain Paul's behavior. Except, I guess, to say that he was crazy. The writer of Hebrews sums this up beautifully in the 11th chapter, that famous chapter of Hebrews that we call the Hall of Faith sometimes because it's such a wonderful reminder of what faith looks like lived out in the lives of the saints of the Old Testament. How these people sacrificed their earthly life in faith because of God's promise of resurrection. Because of resurrection, they could do that. And I want to read just the very end of that chapter. Look at how the writer summarizes the mindset of a Christian who understands the truth of resurrection. Verse 35, he says, speaking of Old Testament saints, the writer says, women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, 
having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God has provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. He says that the Old Testament saints accepted greater persecution. Why? For a better resurrection. Now, how can you have a better resurrection? Is it such the case that I'm going to show up with a body that's not quite fully baked and you're going to have a better one? No, he's not talking about the state of our body, right? He's talking about the better resurrected life, what we're going to receive, the better reward. He's saying they tolerated things that you and I might not even have the courage to face in some cases, but they did so for a better resurrection, not for a better life now. That's not our goal. We may receive greater rewards in the kingdom because of our greater obedience, our greater sacrifice, and our greater faithfulness now. That is the promise of Scripture. But if the Corinthian church truly believed that resurrection was a lie, then their behavior was not congruent with that belief because they weren't living as if there was no tomorrow. They weren't eating and drinking and being merry in that sense. They were sacrificing for the gospel in some cases. They were using their gifts within the body. They were seeking to please the Lord. They were doing things that Paul says doesn't make any sense at all if you don't accept the truth of resurrection. Paul has raised these two examples to highlight these contradictions in their behavior. But in the process, he's exposed something that's even bigger, an even bigger problem in the church. And that is he's exposed their spiritual immaturity. This church didn't understand the meaning of the rituals they were practicing. They self-evidently did not understand what baptism meant, because if they had understood it, they couldn't have held their beliefs and that behavior at the same time, because they were contradictory. And they were seeking to please the Lord, who has said the promised rewards for that pleasing come at a point in history or a point in their future that they denied was even possible. So why are they serving the Lord? It's easy, I guess, to look at some of this and to chuckle a little bit and to think, what knuckleheads? Couldn't they have seen all this? It's so clear to all of us, right? But let's be careful about pointing our fingers too quickly at these folks, because there's a reason why Paul's letter is found in the canon of Scripture today. And that reason is that we're not that much different as a church. I'm talking the church corporate is not that much different than the one that was in Corinth. It really, we aren't. You can still find plenty of examples today in the church somewhere in which belief and behavior is contradicting one another in terms of Christian practice. For example, you can find churches today that practice baptism by sprinkling babies instead of dunking people who've made a confession of faith. I was baptized as an infant by my parents in their traditional church. I've run into many Christians who grew up in a church that practiced that kind of baptism. And now as an adult, they they feel very confident they don't need to repeat it because after all, they were sprinkled. Friends, if you hold to that view, then you are contradicting the message of baptism. What is the message? I believe that I died with him in faith and I believe I'll be resurrected with him as he was. Right. Babies can't believe that, at least not intellectually. And secondly, sprinkling doesn't communicate that. So you haven't met the test of the ritual. It doesn't communicate properly what it's supposed to communicate. It's not your fault if your parents baptize you. But if you have not been baptized in this way, you owe Christ a baptism. You may not have known this before you walked in here today. And if so, it's not on you. But now you know. So from this moment forward, if you do not go get water baptized in the proper way, you are disobeying Christ. Get it done and we'll make it happen with you. 
Some churches feature altars in their sanctuary. You know, those tables they sit out in front of the pulpit or whatever, and they call it an altar. In fact, they have altar calls at the altar, right? What's an altar for in Scripture? It only has one reason to exist in mankind. There's only one reason why we have altars. It's a place of sacrifice. It's where you take animals and you cut their bodies open and you spill their blood. But the Christian faith maintains that sacrifice is no longer needed. The once for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross has been made and it is sufficient for all needs concerning sin. There will never be or nor should there be another sacrifice, man or animal. Why do we have an altar then? Because it's a pretty name for a table. But here again, it's an example of Christian ignorance in a simple way. Yes, but but it leads to a dangerous outcome eventually. If our practices move from the grounding of Scripture, we are fair game for all kinds of mischief in the church. And as that incongruity grows, who knows where our practice can eventually lead? Who knows where our beliefs will eventually go? There are some churches that tell believers you need to seek for a filling of the Holy Spirit that comes after faith and that if you don't seek for it, you may not get it. But the Bible teaches that faith itself comes as a result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They've got those two things exactly backwards. That's a dangerous premise. The list goes on, but the root cause is always the same. Anytime our practices are disconnected from the authority and the instruction of Scripture, we're going in the wrong direction, and it's a dangerous precedent. That's what I think Paul's chief concern here was. It wasn't so much just to embarrass them that, hey, did you know you're doing this thing and it's contrary to your own view? Ha, 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 ha. I mean, there may have been a, an element of that to try to encourage them to think differently. But I think the main concern Paul had was in living in such ignorance while calling yourselves wise in the Greek way of things, you're only fooling yourself. And you're on dangerous ground. Sooner or later, your behavior is going to come into conflict with your beliefs if you're not grounded in Scripture. And before you know it, you become wise in your own estimation, to use Paul's words. Instead of following the Lord by his word, we're going to become in danger of becoming followers of other things, like denominations, like signs and wonders, like styles of worship service, or even worse, cults, heresies, and the like. It's a slippery slope. And Paul's concern is that this church has found itself in bad company, with bad teaching, leading them to bad practice, which eventually erodes their doctrinal understanding of things. Look what he says next, verse 33 and verse 34. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Paul warns, Look, don't be led astray by this kind of false teaching. And he quotes this great phrase. You've heard this phrase, right? Bad company corrupts good morals. It's interesting. This phrase was actually popular already in Paul's day because it comes from a Greek playwright. Euripides wrote a play in which this phrase shows up and it became popular in Paul's day. And so to become a proverb, everyone was quoting it as a truth of its own in Paul's day. And of course, now it's well known because Paul used it and it was eternally memorialized in Scripture. But it does embody a certain truth. When we associate with the wrong people, we find ourselves adopting their bad thinking and their bad practices. We will not uncorrupt bad people by our influence. They will corrupt us by theirs. We hope to influence them for the sake of the gospel, 
But there's a big difference between being a witness to the truth into a world that needs to know it versus joining that world and associating with them. That's a big difference. It's a big difference. I've heard of men who have fallen, who have come from a position of authority and and influence and have found themselves corrupted in some sense and discredited in ministry. When you look at their lives, it's almost always the case that they made a bad association somewhere along the way. And by that association, whether through one individual or a group, they've allowed themselves to be compromised. And so often, prideful people will tell themselves, I'm there to help that group. That's just lying to yourself. Paul quotes this phrase to make the point to these people that if they're going to associate with bad teachers, as they apparently have been doing, then those teachers are going to fill their heads with bad teaching. And if we associate with immature or misled congregations, if for some of us we have to go off and move or do something else and we find ourselves in a church that just does not have the grounding in Scripture that we're accustomed to, then, friends, do not be misled. You will not raise them up. Chances are you will become spiritually immature and misled yourself over time. If we associate with corrupt or fleshly Christians, which Scripture says clearly we are not to do, by the way, then we are going to be likely pulled down by their sinful choices. We will not raise them up. They will pull us down more often than not. That's why Paul says we are not to associate with any so-called immoral brother. If we continue in those patterns, we ought to expect those outcomes. Because, friends, no one's immune to this influence. No one is immune. Once you place yourself under their influence, no one is immune to the outcome. So Paul admonishes the church. This is the most severe admonishment he gives, I think, in the whole letter. I don't think he says anything anywhere nearly as strong as this, as he says in verse 34. He says, start thinking in spiritually mature ways and stop sinning. What was the sin in this case? What what is he asking them to stop doing? Well, in context, among other things, it would mean stop clinging to unbiblical theology in the light of better teaching. When we cling to something that is unbiblical, having been introduced to the truth, at that point we become accountable with God, if not already. And that accountability means we sin every moment thereafter. We hold on to the old theology, having been enlightened concerning the new. Even in the case where you have a Christian who's holding to unbiblical theology, and you bring them the truth, and they refuse to agree with it, they think you're wrong and they're right. Nonetheless, if the truth has been given to them and they've rejected it, they're sinning by definition. And as long as they continue in sin, they risk the discipline of the Lord as a result of their sin. And Paul says to them, stop sinning. We could take those words out and we could put in a different word and have the same idea. Paul says, stop holding to this wrong idea about resurrection. Believe me, in other words. Believe the truth. When the Lord brings you and I the truth concerning his word, and we stubbornly refuse, we hold on to a contrary view, we're demonstrating self-importance, pride, and ultimately disobedience to the word of God. You can get away with protecting your pride only so long. Maybe you can get all the way to the end of your life. Maybe you're good enough and strong enough that you can defend your unorthodox and unbiblical view all the way to the grave. But friends, it's going to end there. Because one day when we stand before the Lord, all of this is going to be exposed. But you don't have to choose spiritual ruin. You don't have to wait till that moment when it's too late to know that you had the truth and rejected it. We can humble ourselves. We can concede to the truth. Paul says, be sober-minded. In other words, be spiritually mature. I have a phrase I use a lot, and I use it on myself as much as I have ever used it on anyone else. I would rather know the truth than be right. I love being right. 
I probably love being right at least as much as anyone in here loves being right. Maybe even a little more than most of you. But I am willing, and I believe I'm sincere when I say this, I am willing to stop being right on anything when God shows me what the truth is. Because then I get to be right about something else. You see? I get to move being right about this to being right about something better. About the truth. And when I go to the grave, I want to be called right as much as possible about the truth. Right? And it's not about me. I'm using that sort of facetiously, but you get my point, right? I'd rather come to the end of my life here understanding the most I can about what is true concerning God and his future and the plans he has and not go to the grave deceived. What benefit is that in mind? Because my pride goes to the grave with me. What good did I achieve in being pridefully right on wrong things? So, friends, if I'm wrong about something, I want to know. And sometimes you're Correction is useful. Sometimes perhaps your correction is the problem and you need to know the truth and we'll have a good discussion. But the point is, I'm open to that. And I think we all need to be open to that. Paul's telling this church, when you're not open to that, you're sinning. You're sinning. When Paul says that the last days will include a mindset in which people no longer want to sit for sound doctrine, but would rather seek for themselves teachers of their own desires. They will accumulate teachers who give them what they want. Tickle their ears, Paul says. You think about what that's really describing. It's describing people who have this particular problem. They'll only sit in a church where the pastor teaches them exactly what they already believe. If you dare challenge their belief on something, they're out of here. Friends, that's sinning. I'm not saying you're always wrong and the pastor's always right. I'm saying the mindset is a sin. It's a mindset that's unteachable. It's a mindset that says my way or the highway. How can you be taught if you only listen to people you agree with? By definition, teaching is a moving of your mind, of your thinking from somewhere to somewhere new. But if you think you've already arrived, you're never going to be taught on anything. We get very dogmatic, I think, as Christians, particularly if you come out of a Bible church or somewhere where the text of Scripture is always in the foreground, because we assume that that's enough to make sure we always get everything right. Friends, it's not, because you're as valuable as I am. You're as likely to be wrong as I am or anyone else who teaches you. That's why it's important that we individually are students of the Word. We individually seek the truth by the Spirit. We individually are discerning. And we have a variety of voices we attune to for teaching so that we hear multiple views without letting one person drive all our thinking. Then we're going to be in the best possible position to find the truth by the Spirit. That's what Paul wanted in this church. He says there were those in this church who had no knowledge of God, and that was to their shame. Now, there's no indication they weren't students of Scripture, or at least thought themselves to be. He didn't say, no one there is studying the Bible. He says, no one there has knowledge of God, or you don't, somebody doesn't have knowledge of God. And he doesn't mean it in the sense that they were unbelieving. He's talking to the church. He's saying, you're utterly ignorant of the very things you think you know so much about. You were professing to teach the truth, but you were fools. You were proving James's teaching true, which is not many should have a desire to be teachers. Don't be too quick. To step into that role. This poor church is being led by fools who did not have a clue and they were bringing others down with them. And Paul says, this is to your shame as a church. So with that strong rebuke, Paul's now going to move into teaching them about the truth that they lacked. And we're going to end with that today. When we come back, we're going to finish this chapter and we're going to finish it in a beautiful way. Paul is finally going to set down the law on what is true concerning resurrection, on God's power, his ability and most intriguing He's going to give us the manner of our resurrection. He's already addressed the timing of it, the the precedence, the order of it in an earlier point. But when we come back, we're going to learn the manner of it. How does it happen? What will it look like? How is it even possible? 
And that manner will lead us into a discussion of some end times events that I think you're going to find eye opening. Many of you know this already, I'm assuming, but some may not. And I want us all to have the same understanding. So that will be the teaching we do when we finish this chapter. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do pray, Lord, that we each have the desire to know the truth more so, Father, than to be pridefully right or thinking ourselves so. It's a challenge, Lord, for any of us, even those who may have committed to knowing the truth over being right, those who have been teachable in many ways. Father, it's still an ever-present temptation to sit high and proud and to think we have all that we need and, and to not be teachable in a moment. I pray, Lord, that each of us would be, that we would take correction and advice, especially those like myself, Father, who teach and who come before the rest of the congregation to bring a word that you would keep us humble to be ready for correction, for we know we need it from time to time. And we do pray, Lord, that as you correct each of us, that we'd all receive it in the right heart. We wouldn't be shamefully foolish, as you said to the Corinthians, Father, but rather we would live in harmony with our beliefs, our, our actions would, guide, would be guided by what we know to be true in Scripture, and, and all these things would work, Father, to the glory of your name. I know, Lord, that you have a timing and when you return, and you have a purpose in the waiting. And yet, Father, we know your promises are sure, so we rest in those trusting that each day brings us one day closer to the reality of them. Thank you, Lord, for the people in this church, for the hearts to know and follow your word. Let us grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that we can be more useful to you in these last days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.